Father, we ask for your blessing upon your word here as we discover the truths that are hidden inside. And may you make the plain truths even more plain. May we be able to go away from the study of this book with a clear understanding of who your son Jesus Christ is and what his purpose is on this earth. And may we not fail, uh, Lord, in our study, in our devotion to you, but may you be our encouragement uh, to continue. In Jesus' name, amen. I went and looked this up. Do you guys know how many miracles, I didn't know this, how many miracles Jesus did? Yeah, count them in the Bible. How many miracles did he do? You got it. It's 37. Well, depending on who you talk to, because it, it appears that in some of the Gospels, the miracles overlap, where they may be referring to the same one, so there's a debate. It can be 33, 34, 35, 37, but 37 seems to be the one that most people point to. If somebody did 37 miracles, would you have a tendency to believe that they came from God? (laughs) I keep on reading about these Pharisees, the Jews, and they just, they were stubborn as stubborn could be, and they would not give in to the idea that Jesus was the Messiah sent from heaven. And we have in John chapter 2, hopefully, Lord willing, we'll make it through chapter 2 and chapter 3. We have the first miracle on your outline, the first mayhem, and the first mandate. So we're going to look at that. Let's pick it up in John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana, at, or at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman... Why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to these servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washings, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Just as a side note, if you go to Israel and you go to any of the excavations, they will show you one of these stone water pots. And they're about this big around they stand about this high and the bottom of the pot is like a pedestal and it just goes up and it's all thrown on a wheel Uh, and it's pretty thick and so these are big pots and the jews would use them for ceremonial washings and so um, he had these filled up as we'll see and of course they turn into wine he told them draw or now draw some and take out or take it to the master of the banquet they did so and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. So the purpose of the miracle was, you know, he wanted to change the water into wine to show that he had this ability uh, to do the miraculous. Because uh, did any of you guys, um, maybe some of the men, when you grew up, do you have a chemistry kit? 
In your chemistry kit, did it tell you how to change water into wine? Chemistry kit we had, they would have you do that experiment of changing water into wine. But in big bold letters it said, don't drink it. (laughs) You know? I don't know what kind of alcohol it was, but it smelled like it. I'm sure they put an ester or something in there uh, to get it to smell like that. But Jesus actually performed this miracle, and it did two things. Number one there, Jesus revealed his glory. And secondly, Jesus became the object of faith for the disciples. Because the miracles were done, they focused on him. They knew that something was different about him than anybody else. And so this is the first miracle that took place. And I could go into a long dissertation of what this means spiritually, but I just want you to get this first miracle, and it's it's how Jesus revealed himself to his disciples prior to this time. He was just talking with them. But the things that he had to say were backed up by the miracle that he performed. Then you have this first mayhem. Verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. They stayed there a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So this is the first mayhem. There is a second mayhem out in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 12. It's the second time that he cleared the temple. So when he went up there, he saw that the Jews were doing number one. They offered penance for a price those are the words to fill in there p-e-n-a-n-c-e for a price now penance in the catholic church it's a christian sacrament in which a member of the church confesses sins to a priest and the priest gives absolution what is absolution the formal release from guilt so you confess to a priest and he gives you a formal release from guilt Now, I think that only the Holy Spirit can do that. This is something that the church has taken on. But this is what the Jews were doing. They were offering a sacrifice to the individuals that would come. And they say, if you have the right sacrifice, then you can have your sins covered in the atonement process. So they were making bucks off of these people. They were gaining, and the word that I chose to use is lucre. L-U-C-R-E, gaining lucre from the laity. The laity is the church. The people, or not the church, but the Jews who were coming in. Those were the lay people, the laity. They weren't part of the priesthood. Gaining lucre from the laity will bring punishment from God. And that's exactly what they were doing. And God was mad. This fact that the church would be used as a marketplace. Now you can judge for yourself if you know of churches that do this and we are by no means a perfect church there's no way but after reading this I've always held that freely we have received freely give if we need to charge something we charge only what it costs us 
to give out materials or we used to do CDs and before that there were these things called tapes that we'd give out and on those tapes you know we'd say hey a buck for the tape and uh, you know bring it back and we'll erase it and we'll use another one and that'll just keep the cost down for everybody and we wouldn't charge you $60 for a videotape set or anything like that that's making money off of the body now I know that there are pastors out there who have writing ministries and video ministries and you know that's how they make their money if they're not getting income from the church and I understand that but there is a line that can be crossed when people try to make sport of those inside of the church they fleece the sheep and God's very upset about that and he cleared the temple God being Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Verse 18, then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered, verse 19, them, destroying this temple or destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And so the Jews wanted a miracle as proof that Jesus had the authority to act. Like, you claim to be from God? Okay, I want to see a miracle. The only miracle that he would give them was the sign of Jonah. Rising from the dead is the only sign necessary to believe in the authority of Christ. Jesus pointed to the sign of his rising from the dead three times in Scripture. First here in John chapter 2, then in Matthew chapter 12, and in Matthew chapter 16. Why don't you guys actually open up your Bibles, grab a Bible, Matthew chapter 12, and beginning in verse 38. Uh, There's the story here that Jesus, or Matthew tells about Jesus, saying that a wicked and adulterous generation looks after a sign. Matthew chapter 12, 38. It says, then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation ask for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be there three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Then turn over to Matthew chapter 16, verse 1. A couple of pages over. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather. For the sky is red, and in the morning, today, it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the time. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. So this idea of a sign is the only miraculous thing that Jesus said will qualify for you to understand that he has this authority. And they were unwilling to accept his authority even after the sign had taken place. And so we know that he was trying to, um, or they were trying to kill him before this Um, period of the resurrection but they they just couldn't stand the fact that he was doing these miraculous signs these healings especially on the sabbath because it went against their power structure that they had 
And if there is no resurrection, Jesus said, this is the sign that you are to look for. And of course, we know he rose from the dead. But if he really didn't raise from the dead, you know what scripture says about that? It says we are to be pitied more than anyone else on the face of the earth if there is no resurrection. Because why are we doing this? We shouldn't be doing this at all. I would tell you if there is no resurrection, there is no afterlife, and you might as well steal and cheat and get every single thing you can in this life by whatever means necessary, because if there is no judgment, there's no consequence. But if there is a consequence, and it goes on for all of eternity, I would say you better not cheat, you better not steal, you better not chew or go with those that do. You know, that type of thing... Really, you can chew. I'm not going to go down that road too much. But it's this idea that you would avoid things that would stumble others or stumble yourself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and you should probably mark this in your Bible and put a reference to it in the beginning of your Bible in the blank pages that are there. It is the resurrection chapter. It is thought that this was a creed. Um, and you know what the Apostles' Creed is, I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, that type of thing. And before they had the written word, they would give them creeds to memorize. And I think there's a total of about 32 creeds in the New Testament that they are able to recite, and this is one of them. They were able to recite it if they didn't have God's word in front of them. And 1 Corinthians 15 in verse 15 says... More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God if there is no resurrection. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. So if there is no resurrection, we are doing this in vain. Now I'll ask you a question. Why doesn't God offer huge miracles so that people will believe? I mean, could he do such a miracle that even the doubters would come in and say, that's it. I see the miracle, I'm going to believe. And why doesn't God do that? I mean, why why doesn't he cause the Pacific Ocean to spread just like the Red Sea? And No, go ahead. I'd like to, if you want to answer, go ahead. By faith. Well, it is true by faith. Yes, Nate. You're talking about Lazarus and the rich man in Luke, what is it, chapter 16? The reason he doesn't do that is because God is not willing to override your free will. He could easily do a miracle that would impress even the biggest skeptic. But this idea that God would do that, he would compel you. And that is number two there. God offers convincing truth, but not compelling truth.
God will not compel you to believe. I have uh, just completed a book, Why I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, by Norm Geisler. It is such a good book. I mean, just for the existence of Jesus Christ and all of the proofs that are surrounding him, for the person who honestly seeks the information, the proofs that Jesus existed, that he rose from the dead, that everything in the Bible is true, it is so overwhelming that the person who looks at it and says, I don't believe, is just refusing to believe. It is called Why I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Norm Geisler. Now, I listened to it on audiobook, and I, you know, some of the chapters in there I think are uh, an hour long. I don't know, there's 16 or 17 chapters, but he starts out with creation and evolution, and he goes into the canon of scripture, he goes into the existence of Jesus, the evidence for the resurrection, both inside the Bible, the evidence, and outside the Bible. He is just thorough. Uh, going, and he has another author. Oh, what's the name of the other? Frank Turek. Frank Turek and Norm Geisler. And it is such a good book. Now, there's a couple of chapters in there that uh, you'll probably say, what? I, I don't understand this at all. A um, couple of meteor chapters. But if you can wade through those meteor chapters, uh, meteor chapters and get to the ones that are not so meaty it will be quite rewarding if you were to memorize most of the stuff in that book you would never ever have to carry anything around with you to be able to make a defense for the christian faith all you'd have to do is quote um, what is in that book so it's a wonderful book i'm going to go through it certainly again maybe a couple of times but that's why god does not offer compelling miracles He doesn't want to violate the free will of an individual. If they don't want to believe, they don't have to believe. There's enough evidence to prove everything about Jesus, but God will not use compelling truth to get someone to believe. He will not violate our free will. Thirdly, a miraculous or the miraculous serves to reinforce the word of God, which brings saving faith. That's the purpose of the miraculous. The miraculous is not meant to save people it's the word that's meant to save people it's the miraculous that just reinforces it verse 22 in john chapter 2 after he was raised from the dead the disciples recalled what he had said then they believed the scripture and the words that jesus had spoken and so the predicate or the base or the ground or the premise to saving faith is not miracles it is the words that jesus spoke and the words are so many, they're, they're sufficient for us to come to salvation. Number four there, miracles by themselves cannot manifest saving faith. Now, there are church traditions that people show up just for signs and wonders. Um, it has been my experience, and I started in a church Uh, That was an Assemblies of God type church. And when I started there, they put an emphasis on a lot of the sign gifts. And when I saw that, especially the tongues, they would speak in tongues and they would do it all at once. 
everybody at the same time, and they do this sometimes in Mexico, they will just start speaking in tongues or in English. If somebody didn't have the gift of tongues, that would be an angelic language, a language, another human language, or just English. If you can imagine a few hundred people all speaking at once and praying to God. Paul says, people think you're mad. And I did. I was a brand new Christian. I walked in there and I said, this is weird. This is really weird. I wish they wouldn't do this. You know, and then I found out later what it was. And people will go to church just to experience these highs, like being touched by the Spirit, where most of our Christianity, it's 95% perspiration. I mean, you're just flipping through Scripture. You're trying to memorize. You're doing your devotion. You're doing all that. And every once in a while, the Lord comes along and blesses you with insight or being filled with the Spirit or you're overfilled with love. But if you strive to have that every single time you go to church, if you don't have it, you're going to be disappointed when you go away. And it, you think that every single time is supposed to be like that, that's, you're being mistaken because Scripture doesn't teach that. These sign gifts, any type of miraculous sign or anything, any manifestation of the Spirit is meant only to reinforce God's Word. God's Word is preeminent. It is the one that is out in front. And so the signs, we don't want to seek after the signs. Uh, and Luke chapter 16, verse 31, that is the one that Nate was talking about. It's Lazarus and the rich man. In verse 31, it is written, he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone raises from the dead or rises from the dead. And so if you were to go to one of the cemeteries, um, there's, um, what's one in El Cajon out there, Dehisa Road, El Cajon, whatever it is. If you walked out there and all of a sudden somebody popped out of the ground and they had a message that Jesus Christ was real, and that he is raising people from the dead. There might be a few people that believe, but that's not what saves us. And that type of belief can be a superficial belief. How many people abandoned Jesus at his crucifixion? Everyone. And he did the miraculous, and people put their faith in him, but they were unwilling to have the type of saving faith that they needed. And we'll see that here in these passages. So number five, faith comes by hearing and not by miracles. Romans chapter 10, verse 17, consequently, consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. And going back to John chapter 2, verse 23, now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. And so they had this superficial belief in Jesus Christ, that he was who he said he was just because of the fanciful atmosphere that would be around the miraculous. If you do a miraculous sign, um, not even a miraculous sign, have you ever been to a, a magic show? I mean a real magic show like David Copperfield or something like that. Um, you do the miraculous and people go, ooh, ah, oh, I, I have this... Um, magic trick it's the miraculous where I take two coins and I make them into one and the first time I did that yeah <laughs> first time I did that people just went whoa huh? let me see that and they wanted to try to figure it out how it was done it's just a trick you know it's just a little trick that you do but 
Imagine if somebody gets up and walks that was paralyzed. I mean, the awe that would be through the people that was there, it would just be a spectacular thing. And so you might put your faith into an individual who claims to be a prophet if they're doing the miraculous, but if you don't listen to the words, it's not going to carry you through. Remember, it's the word of God that produces the faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God and not by miracles. Fifthly, miracles without the word of God only serves to deceive. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. This is talking about the coming of the Antichrist. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And the truth is God's word. And Jesus is the truth. They refuse to believe that, but they will believe and follow the enemy of God, which is the Antichrist and Satan, because of the miracles, signs, and wonders that are done. In the future, we know that those are coming. I don't know what type of sign or miracle will be performed but if I had to guess I would say something like calling fire out of heaven Uh, if you could call a pillar of fire out of the sky you think you'd get an audience you bet you would and whatever you said with that people would believe it because you could do this miraculous or what if you decided to part a river and just walk through it Now, that would be a counterfeit miracle if the enemy is doing it because he's obviously not walking in the spirit of God. He's doing it for his own devices for selfish reasons. And by the way, no miracle was done to benefit a person selfishly in the New Testament. And there was a point in which even the Apostle Paul did not do miracles. For instance, he couldn't heal himself. Even though he had raised people from the dead, he couldn't heal himself. God would not allow him to do it, right? And so these evil miracles are these miracles that have an evil purpose, and that purpose is to deceive. And so we already know the time of miracles like this, the miraculous, where people being raised from the dead, it's not that it's completely done. If you um, check out missionaries and what they're doing, when they go to these places that the word of God has never gone, there are stories of people being raised from the dead, the miraculous happening, people being healed. And I believe that they are taking place. But in a society like ours, do we want God in our society being prominent? No, we don't. And if God was in our society and being prominent, would there be a need for miracles? No, there wouldn't. We would simply hold to God's word. Let's go on in verse 24 of John chapter 2. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in man. Now, this is kind of nebulous. What is he saying here? But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, the ones who believed. In other words, he would not bring them close as a faithful friend. He knew what they were about. He knew that they were superficial in their faith, that they would not go to the cross with him, that they would not support him, and that they would abandon him. And so he just, he was happy to minister to them to show them what they needed to have real saving faith. But he wouldn't trust them because he knew the sinful nature which is bent on wrongdoing that resides in every human being. And so that's why he would not bring them close. Who did he bring close? He brought 
close twelve. The twelve men, he brought them close, and even they deserted him. But when he resurrected from the dead, he gave them reason for faith that was just beyond comprehension. They were able to die themselves. Every single apostle died, it is believed, except for John. But they tried to kill him. Uh, John the apostle, who wrote this, they tried to boil him in a vat of oil, like a fondue, you know, just boil the oil and stick him in there, and it was more like a jacuzzi for him. Uh, He was not burned. He was not scalded. And because of that, they knew something was up, so they banished him to the Isle of Patmos. And on the island of Patmos, that's where he wrote the book of Revelation. So we should be wary. Also, taking an application of this, we should be wary of anyone who we call a friend um, for the same reason that Christ was leery of calling somebody a friend because have you ever had a really close friend abandon you? Just walk away. Just say, hey, man, we're done. We're finished. Um, I think most of us at some point in our lives have had that. If you haven't had that, well, that's great. But even Proverbs says in twenty, chapter 20, verse 6, many a man claims to have unfailing love, but a faithful man who can find. The faithful person should be your spouse. If it's not your spouse... If your spouse deserts you or leaves, uh, so holds true Proverbs chapter 20, verse 6. And maybe there are other men or other women, especially those who have served in the military and combat. I think there you will find faithful men. When you are seeking to save somebody else's life, when you're willing to give yours for theirs, there's no greater love than that. But it takes those types of circumstances, I believe, to cultivate that type of relationship. Time and ongoing relationship will determine who is faithful. Let's go on. Secret talk. We have secret talk, seeker balked, and we'll go on to the rest of them here. Secret talk. This is John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. This would be otherwise known as the Sanhedrin or the Sanhedrin. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Okay, so Nicodemus comes to Jesus. And the reason he comes to Jesus at night is because he doesn't want to be recognized by the other members of the Sanhedrin or the Levites or any of the Sadducees because at this point, you know, the Sanhedrin, they weren't quite sure what they were going to do with Jesus, but they knew that he was up to no good. And so Nicodemus comes at night incognito. He waits till it gets dark. He may have had a hood over his head as he's walking down, may have disguised himself a little bit, but he shows up and he talks to Jesus. And so Jesus knew the heart of Nicodemus. He knew what was in there, and I'm sure he knew, God revealed to him, God the Father did by the agency of the Holy Spirit, that Nicodemus didn't know everything he needed to know, and he was a ruler in Israel. So he tells him, hey, I tell you the truth, that no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And he knew that that would tweak Nicodemus. And Nicodemus... And the secret talk leads to him balking a little bit. Balking means like, 
he throws his head back. What are you talking about? That makes a lot of nonsense. Well, under the secret talk, we have Nicodemus saw Jesus at night for fear of the other Jews. We know this later on in the Gospel of John, chapter 9, verse 22, when the blind man was healed. Remember when they were questioning him? They had already declared at that point that anybody who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. So at the time Nicodemus was talking, there was always, I'm sure, already this undercurrent of, you know, we got to kick people out. We can't allow Jesus to keep on gaining a following. This is not going to be acceptable. And so he feared what was going on. Now, Nicodemus, number two, acknowledged that Jesus was sent by God. Now, I'm sure he is not the only one of the Sanhedrin. He was probably a representative of a couple of the people in the Sanhedrin who would put their faith in Jesus after the resurrection, because we know many of the Jewish leaders did that. And he acknowledged that Jesus was sent from God simply because of the miracles that were being performed. Because he says back up there, uh, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. That's in verse 2. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. So he, I mean, he's a common sense guy. He sees it. There's no struggle for power that he's portraying. He's just simply saying, you know, you're from God. And so he wants to ask him some questions. And so Jesus tells him, well, you're not going to see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And this is where he balks. He recoils. He flinches. He draws back. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Now, do you understand in the passage here, Jesus led him to believe that you had to go through the birth process again. And he misunderstood what kind of birth process. He was thinking you had to go back into your mother's womb and do it again. And he's going, this is nuts. And that's why he recoiled, right? And so that's the context of what's going on. It's a physical birth. Nicodemus asks, surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. In other words, I'm not lying. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus has. I could just see him throwing up his arm going, hey there, what are you talking about? You know, he's balking at what Jesus is teaching there. And so he's trying to get some understanding and this is really tweaking his understanding. He's not sure where Jesus is going with this. You are Israel's teacher, Jesus said, and you do not understand these things. In other words, he should have. I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. Now, as he's talking here, I believe he's including his disciples who are probably sitting with him. Because he says, we speak of what we know. He's probably looking at Nicodemus going, we speak of what we know. And his disciples are going, yes, we do. We speak of what we know. And we testify to what we have seen. But still you people, you people being the leaders, the Sanhedrin, 
You people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came down from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, there is so much that is packed here. The first one is we must be born twice in order to enter into heaven. Now, there's some controversy about what this means to be born twice. I I need to give you the context here. It's a physical birth that Jesus is allowing Nicodemus to believe, the actual birth process. And he's saying, you must be born of water and the Spirit. And this idea of being born of water has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. There are those who believe that this being born of water means water baptism and you are not saved through water baptism first peter chapter 3 verse 21 it says it's not the removal of dirt from the body but a pledge of a good conscience towards god that's what saves you it's the pledge of a good conscience towards god towards god it's not the dipping in the water that actually gets you into heaven Uh, there's some churches that teach that that you have to be baptized and at the time you were baptized in water that's when you received the baptism of the holy spirit as well and that is also not correct Uh, in scripture it teaches the baptism of the holy spirit was a separate event from the baptism in water so this idea that you're being born of water means water baptism it does not or being born of water means being born again by the word of god that's not what is in the context. In the context here, Nicodemus thinks he's talking about physical birth. Jesus says you must be born of water and born of spirit. In verse 6 there, if you look at verse 6, it says, Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Now we all know that when a baby is born, the amniotic sac breaks. And the first thing a woman will say is, My water broke. And a child is going to be born with water. And there are children who are born into water. They get them in a pool and they birth the baby in the water and they bring the baby out of the water to make it less traumatic and turn the lights down. They do all that. So we have to be born into this life in water. But our second birth is a spiritual birth. So this, this water does not mean, this born in water or of water, does not mean that we are born again by the word of God because it's not the right context. Also, born of water does not mean that we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That if we are baptized in water, we are regenerated at that time, and that's the time that we get saved. Again, it's not the proper context that Jesus explains here. And then there's a fourth one. Being born of water does not mean it is the fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 36. You guys want to turn there a minute? In Ezekiel chapter 36, there's a promise of a new covenant and how we are going to be sprinkled clean uh, with water. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. I believe this is a direct promise to the nation of Israel. It says in verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. 
I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live where? In the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. I think that this refers to the millennial reign of Christ when Jesus comes back and makes the Jews his own. And that's what that's referring to. But some people say, no, it's the fulfillment. It's more spiritual. The born of the water is not a spiritual thing. Born of the water is physical birth. And then born of the spirit is a spiritual birth. You have to be born twice. And if you're born twice, you will only die once. Secondly, you cannot tell who is born again except by the effect or by their effect, I should say. Verse 8 says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So if you, you break this down, the wind blows, right? And somebody born of the Spirit, it's like they come in, but you, you see the effects, but you may not know that they're born again. And he says, you can hear the sound of the wind. You can see the effects that the person has on those who are around them. And if you see the effects, then you will know. Now that also comports with something else in Scripture. How will you know somebody is a Christian uh, according to Scripture? Can you think of anything else they will know we are Christians by? Our love, by our fruit. And so it's the same thing. There is going to be an effect that takes place when somebody is a believer. If somebody claims to be a believer and they are not affecting or affecting anyone around them, it's time to take another look, right? Especially when it comes to the sound, you hear it. Now, he doesn't say when this wind blows, you see its effects. He says, you hear its effects. If you want to take that a little farther, now I'm not going to be dogmatic on this, but it means you have a verbal witness that you are saved. Uh, Christ also said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father, which is in heaven, right? And that's in Luke chapter 12, verses 8 and 9. So you will be a witness to those who are out there, no matter what the consequences are, right? So you want to make sure that in your life, you are being a witness for Christ, that you're actually opening up your mouth, that people see the ramifications of what has taken place, of you being born again. Now, here we have the saving snake was Savior's fate. And also, Savior's fate brings saving grace. In verse 14, it says, just as, and this is 14 of chapter 3, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, he is referring to an incident back in Numbers chapter 21. The Israelites, uh, they were attacked, and once they were attacked, they said, God, you know, if you just give us these people, these Canaanites, we will utterly destroy them in all their cities, and it will all be good. And God listened to them and said, okay, we're going to do that. But then God had Moses reroute them, and the way he rerouted them, they were 
kind of going up the west side towards Jericho, going north to where Jerusalem was, would be. But what God had him do is go around the back side of the Dead Sea on the east side over by Jordan. And it is desolate over there. You go to the deserts out here, and there's plant life out here. When you drive from here to El Centro and over to Yuma, uh, you see plant life going most of the way. Even in the sand dunes, you see it. When you get to the wilderness in Judea, you don't see hardly anything. I mean, if you see these little bitty plants out there, it, it is the most desolate place. They have this um, mock-up of the uh, tabernacle in the wilderness in the Valley of Timnah. And it is just rock. It looks like the surface of Mars out there. There is hardly anything out there as far as plants are concerned. And so it's this type of area that God sends the Israelites. He's going, okay, we're going to go all the way around Edom and all the way up the east coast of the Dead Sea over by the Gulf of Aqaba. And that's the way we're going to go up north. And so the people started to complain. The people said... There is no water. We don't have food. And the food that we have, we don't like it. And they complained against God and they complained against Moses. At that particular time, God said, all right, that's it. You guys are done. And he sends a bunch of venomous snakes. And they start biting the people and the people start dying. And so the the Israelites repented. They said, please, Moses, tell God we're sorry. We won't complain anymore. Just please take away the snakes. God did not take away the snakes. He said to Moses, Moses, I want you to make a bronze snake and I want you to put it on a pole and I want you to set it in the middle of the people to where if somebody gets bit by a snake, they have to look to the pole. Once they look to the pole, they won't die. If they don't look to the pole with the bronze snake on it, they will die if they get bit. That's all you have to do. You have to believe that looking at the snake on the pole will save you, right? Now that is clearly foreshadowing of Christ. Number one there, the cursed snake on the pole foreshadowed Christ who was a curse for us. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 14, you remember the story of the fall and when God came along, he cursed the serpent and he says you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life so the especially the israelites back then they'd look at a snake and say oh you are cursed the serpent is cursed right and anyone who hangs on a tree is under a curse deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 22 if a man is guilty of a capital offense is put to death and his body is hung on a tree you must not leave his body on the tree overnight be sure to bury him that day because anyone who is hung on a tree is under god's curse so you have a cursed snake who hangs on a pole or a tree that makes him a curse like doubly Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 tells us Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So just as the Israelites would have to look at the cursed serpent on the tree who was cursed because it was hung on a tree, 
also must look to Christ. We must look to Christ, the human race, the Gentiles, the pagans who need to be saved, have to look to Christ in order to be saved. That was a foreshadowing. God put that in the Old Testament so we would understand it in the New Testament that Christ became a curse for us, as is repeated in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. And God does this over and over and over in the scriptures. So next one here, Savior's fate brings saving grace. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for the fear his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. So people are saved by faith. That is believing in Christ. Secondly, people who believe are no longer condemned to the second death. And you might put under that Romans chapter 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And people, thirdly, don't believe, people who don't believe, wait, back up, people don't believe because they love evil more. That's what this idea of everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light. They love the darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. That's verse 19. And so the way that anybody gets saved, and by the way, this is exclusive. There is no other way to get saved. There, It's not this idea that all religions are spokes that lead to the hub, which is God. God was very exclusive in this. Some people would say, well, he's so bigoted. There's only one way. Bigoted is being narrow-minded, saying that you know there's just one way. Well, Jesus said there's only one way. Why do we need more than one way? That's where we want to create God in our image. We want to make more ways. I was talking about that with the Ten Commandments. We don't want to worship God the way he says to. We want to worship God the way we want to, right? And so it is by faith that we are saved. Now, Anon Dip. Verse 22 of chapter 3. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John also was baptizing near Anon, near, near Salim, because there was plenty of water and the people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. This verse 25, it really just doesn't seem to fit in there. Because it talks about Jesus is baptizing over here. Then there's an argument that comes up between John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washings. And then it shifts over to the disciples of John complaining that Jesus is over there baptizing and more people are going to him than are being with John. And they're saying, what's up with that? You know, you're the one that started, you're the first one to start the baptizing and now Jesus is over there with his disciples and look, everybody's going over to him. So this verse 25 is right in the middle. There was a dispute between some of John's disciples and this Jew who wanted to argue about ceremonial washings. If you go to Israel today, especially at the uh, Western Wall, there's a bathroom right off of the Western Wall. You go in there and there's probably 15 sinks 
And every one of the sinks has this little pitcher. This little pitcher looks like something that you would have in a hospital room. It's a tan color. It has a, a cap over the top. Uh, the ones in the bathroom in Israel don't have caps over the top. But you would take that if you were a Orthodox Jew and you would stick that underneath the faucet and then you would put your hands up like this and you would pour the water over the top like this. And you would switch hands and you pour water over. There's a certain way to do it. And if you don't do it right, then you're not really a good Orthodox Jew. And so they have these ceremonial washings that they would go through. And I think the number is three times that they have to do this going back and forth. And then they have to go get the towel. And they're real meticulous about following this. But they're not meticulous about the justice and the mercy and those types of things. Yes, you have a question. There is soap there, yes. There is soap. That's the question. Do they have soap there? Well, yes, they have soap at those bathrooms, but it's the point of washing like that. And so this Jew's showing up saying, no, you got to wash right. And John's disciples apparently are saying, no, it's not important. And then John's disciples, they get into this tiff. What is what is that guy, the one that you bore witness of? And look at him. He's over there. and More people are going to him. Now, don't we do that? For instance, in a church, well, how come everybody else is at the church on the other side of the river and they're not coming to this church? And what is John's response to that? Or why is everybody going to that Bible study and not this Bible study? You know, what's the problem here? And we get all huffy on the inside and the flesh just rises to the top and you're going... It's not fair. You know, we've done more. We were the first ones over there. And you can just go on a rant and the flesh can just rise up, right? And then you start being critical. Well, they're not doing it quite right. They don't have the best doctrine over there. You know, what's the deal with that? Anyhow, and Jesus was actually doing some of the baptizing. Imagine if you were one that got baptized by Jesus himself. What would you say? (laughs) I am more spiritual than you. I got baptized by Jesus. You only got baptized by Peter, you know, or by John. You weren't baptized by Jesus. Well, going on with this, the disciples of John lamented that Jesus and his disciples were more popular. In verse 27, to this John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. So John is calling himself the best man. It is not his time. It is a time for the groom, which is Jesus Christ. And his bride is going to be coming forth shortly because the church hasn't been birthed yet. But it's coming. The church is coming. And so John's saying, look, this has been my lot. This is what I've been given. I am the best man. I'm going to rejoice over him. It's kind of like always the best man, never the groom, you know. And that's where he's standing. And I'm sure there's... Maybe a little bit lament. You know, he's probably trying to console his disciples who were there. But he goes on to say a few poignant words. He says in verse 30, He must become greater and I must become less. 
or he must increase and I must decrease. Uh, number two there, Christ was greater than the greatest prophet. Excuse me, that was, yes, Christ was greater than the greatest prophet who had ever lived up until that time, which was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the greatest prophet, as mentioned by Jesus, that had ever lived. And yet Jesus was greater than him. Verse 31 says, The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth. And he's making a distinction between Christ and himself. And speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. This is referring to the rejection of Jesus. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. And he's referring to himself. He's saying, yeah, this is true. God is truthful and the world does not accept him. For the one, verse 34, whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. Uh, The third one here, John bears witness that Jesus is from God. And fourthly, rejection of Jesus equals rejection of eternal life. This truth is still applicable today. That is why, under the application, we have to be a witness like John the Baptist. We have to bear witness to the truth. I know that there are some who would say, I'm being a witness by the style of life that I live a lifestyle witness. We cannot do that. We have to actually open up our mouths. Nobody's going to get saved by watching us live a good life. Now, occasionally someone will ask, someone will ask you, why? Why are you like this? If you see somebody who is a good person, you should ask him, are you a believer in Christ? Now, we know that no one's good, but somebody who lives good in society, you should ask him. I once did this. I walked up to somebody, he was actually working for me, and I said, why aren't you a believer? I mean, you you live your life in a moral fashion. Um, You don't cuss. You don't do all the things going around gallivanting and sleeping with women everywhere. I said, why aren't you a Christian? And he turns to me and he says, I don't know. I said, dude, you got to get saved. You know, you're going to be a good person here in this life, and it means nothing as far as eternity is concerned. Well, he ended up getting saved, and then his brother got saved. And that was 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And and so we want to make sure that we are actually opening up our mouths. Now, you have somebody in mind that you could actually give the gospel to. Now, this gospel, it's right there in front of us. Whoever believes, in verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. The entire world has the wrath of God on them now as we speak. And we can offer them this gift of eternal life. Not that we possess the gift, but God will give it to them if they simply ask. So our job is to be a witness, just like John the Baptist, to open up our mouths and become skilled in giving the gospel and giving people the opportunity. Don't worry about reaping the harvest. That's God's job. We're just simply supposed to be a witness. Now, do you guys have questions about chapter 2 or about chapter 3? You're all good. Nate. 
first time. He did it twice. He cleared, the question was, when he went into the temple, was that the first time or the second time in the Gospel of John? That was the first time. Now, I have a question for you. When he made the whip, do you think the whip was for the animals or for the people? Do you think both? He turned the tables. Now, these tables, if you do some historical research, these tables were probably made out of marble. And they could have been four inches thick. They could have been six inches thick. They certainly, in the temple compound, they wouldn't have been made out of some planks of railroad ties. You know, it would have been nice up in that area. Because the whole temple area was nice. And the disciples even commented about how beautiful the temple was. So Jesus, now he's a carpenter, right? He walks up and he flips the tables over. Now, if you had a marble table, do you think you'd draw attention by flipping it over? Do you think the people at the temple tables would be upset? Would their hands be flying in the air? Would they start coming after you? They might. I don't know if Jesus went after the people with the whip, but I certainly wouldn't put it past them uh, to do something like that. Yeah. We don't know how he used it. You know, if, if you look at uh, the Amish and the way that they drive their horses behind their buggies, they have that horse whip, right? Does the horse whip hit the animal now most of the time it is the snap but I have seen yeah I have seen a horse trainer trying to train a horse to get into a horse trailer and the horse just would not do it and he smacked that horse a couple of times and it bucked and tried to kick him and he's going no you won't and he smacked it again on the rear you know, so when you're driving cattle, or if you have ever been to a slaughterhouse, that prod, they stick it on the hind quarter of the animal to get it to move. And so Jesus is using this whip, and I don't know if he could have made a whip that would crack, but he could certainly make a whip that would leave a welt, you know, on an animal. And did he use it on the people or not? You know, we think of Jesus meek and mild. I don't know. He was pretty upset. Uh, any other questions? I don't want to be around underneath his whip when judgment comes. You know, because I think it's going to be a lot worse. Uh, He is going to be the lion of the tribe of Judah. We're at the top of the hour. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that we can see more clearly of who Jesus is and this idea about salvation. Uh, And we ask that you would help us to retain the information that we might share it with others. That they may come to a saving faith a faith that removes them from the condemnation and the wrath that is present already. We ask, Lord, that you would use us as vessels to bring peace to those who are out there, to be vessels of mercy and grace. And, Father, we all know somebody that needs that. And I pray that you would prepare their hearts and give us the opportunity to share our faith and bring them into the fold and be purveyors, be those who carry the love that you have for us to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for coming.